Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919 919- Two seven five four four seven seven. Enjoy the Bible study. Okay, did you know that it's been two months to the day the last time I taught? And so we have a, a whole bunch of stuff that um, I covered last time, but I want to review it. I want to kind of just go through it kind of quickly, but I want to be able to see the whole picture. And so John chapter 14, to pick it up, Uh, at at the beginning again, but I'm going to go through this quicker than I did last time so we can finish John 14 tonight. So um, do you remember the previous context when we find John 14? What had just occurred? Well, the Passover meal, right? Jesus had washed the disciples' feet. Uh, He came to the point where he said, one of you is going to betray me, um, and it's Judas. And he told Judas that thou doest do quickly. Judas walked out of the room. And all of the disciples, except for maybe John, was like, oh, he's going to get some food. We forgot some additional supplies for for the Passover meal. They had no idea. Uh, Judas did a good job of masking his his inner character and his inner motives. Uh, But what happens in John chapter 13, and I want to kind of share with you, starting in verse 18 of, of John 13, listen to what Jesus says. I speak not of you all, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture might be fulfilled, he that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, that ye may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth, whomsoever I send, receiveth me. And he that receiveth me, receiveth him that sent me. When Jesus thus said, he was troubled in his spirit, and testified, and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Okay? It's not necessarily anxiety or worry because those things are resulted in a lack of faith. It was simply a human stress of knowing what was about to befall him in the next less than 24 hours. He was going to be arrested and tried and crucified within that short of a period of time. So our Savior who is God in human flesh. Hebrews says he is tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He experienced trouble in his heart. And when we talk about Jesus suffering on our behalf, the atonement, it was fully paid and and, and stamped paid in full at the resurrection. But those sufferings that he suffered on our behalf, I don't think that they began the moment that the nail was nailed through his hand. I believe that they began in the Garden of Gethsemane and even before that, because we see here, things are starting to take place. He's starting to experience the stress of what is about to befall him on our behalf. And so with that in mind, look at what he says in chapter 14 in verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. 
Ye believe in God, believe also in me. I, I told you last time, and I'll have to refresh your memory. Uh, if you're anything like me, I have a horrible, horrible memory. But I wanted to refresh your memory as to the theme of this chapter and, and what I'm titling this study is 10 ways, 10 ways to remove trouble from your heart. And it all kind of starts with this first statement, let not your heart be troubled. And the rest of chapter 14 all fits within a description, really, of how we can do that, how we can remove that trouble, that anxiety, that fear from our heart. How many of you guys struggle with anxiety or fear or worry? Every once in a while, time to time, something happens and you know you get this sinking feeling, okay? I'm by nature an anxious person, and so I know a lot of scripture about being anxious because I need it, <laughs> okay? But here, Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. I mentioned last time that the, the, the Hebrew word for, for God is Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. And these people that Jesus was talking to, they weren't people that didn't know who God was. They were Jewish men, okay? All of the disciples were Jewish. And so when he says, you believe in God, and the Jewish people today, they have a hard time accepting that Jesus is God because they don't fully understand the context of their own scripture. What it says about the Messiah, that he had to be God or else he wasn't going to be the Messiah. But anyway, Jesus tells his disciples, you believe in God, believe in me like you believe in God. Okay? And so many times in the book of John, we've seen Jesus equate himself with God. I and the Father are one. He tells Philip in this very chapter, I believe, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Um, he said, before Abraham was, I am. He is God in human flesh. And so he's helping them to understand, you need to believe in me. And this will reduce trouble in your heart. As believers, if we've trusted Jesus as our Savior, we have so many things to look forward to, and we have so much taken care of for us that we like to bear on a daily basis, on our own. When he has said, you know, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, and you will find rest unto your souls. And so I'm hoping that tonight maybe somebody that needs rest spiritually can find it uh, tonight. Let not your heart be troubled. Number one, point number one, how to remove trouble from your heart, receive Jesus. Verse one, which we read. Point number two, refocus your eyes on eternity in verse number two. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And we talked about how that word mansion is not like a Beverly Hillbillies mansion that we're each going to have our own mansion on the row of mansions on, you know, Glory Street or whatever some kind of song talks about. It's within the Father's house there are many mansions. That word mansion is translated abode in verse 23. And so it has the idea of a dwelling place. It seems kind of cheap to say it's a room, but that's exactly what it's saying. It's a room, it's an abode within the Father's house that is so much more personal than some kind of grand Beverly Hillbillies mansion that you got all to yourself. That's not what it's referring to. It's referring more to the aspect of Jesus is preparing a place, an abode, a dwelling. It may be small, but we don't, we're not told that. But it's a place within his Father's house that he has prepared for you individually, that Jesus is preparing just for you, and he's been doing it for the last 2,000 years. If that's not something to be excited about, I don't know what is. And we should be excited about that when we refocus our eyes on eternity. Moving along quickly, point number three. And I'm, I'm going through this because there's like 31 verses in John chapter 14. And so I want to be able to get to where we left off last time. Point number three, rejoice in the return of Jesus. <clears throat> he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, 
I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way you know. Jesus is coming back. And the disciples and the apostles, those that wrote the scripture, the apostle Paul, he was excited about this. He says, uh, looking for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing. He thought that Jesus would come that soon. When we're 2,000 years removed from that, that just means we're 2,000 years closer. Okay? It doesn't change the imminency. It doesn't change the, the fact that we can be just as excited, yea, more excited than Paul was about the return of Jesus because he hasn't come back yet. Why hasn't he come back yet? Well, in our day, it's the same as it was in Peter's day, who wrote, God is not willing that any should perish, but long-suffering uh, that all should come unto repentance. Uh, he doesn't want anybody to perish for eternity, cut off from God, separated forever. And so he's waiting. Uh, he wants people to be able to receive him. And so, point number four. Are you guys getting, well, I got them written down this time. They're not blanks this time like they were last week, okay? Point number four, realize that you already have the solution to your biggest problem. And this goes right along with receiving Jesus. But even if you're saved, if you have received Jesus, a lot of times... We forget this. Now, we don't, we don't forget it on purpose. In our minds, we're thinking, yeah, I know I'm saved. I'm good. I, I, I know that. And yet we live a life of worry and fear and anxiety. And we shouldn't because our biggest problem is already taken care of. Um, you've heard of people refer to some as possibly like you're living like a practical atheist. You know, somebody that says, I believe in God, but they live like he doesn't exist. Well, sometimes we as Christians... Uh, we live like we're practical heathen as far as our worry and our fear and our lack of faith and our lack of trust. And sometimes, it's interesting, I talked about this, um, I don't know how long ago it was, but when they were on the Sea of Galilee and the storm was raging and Jesus was asleep in the boat and they were going nuts, the disciples, they were all getting ready to, you know, they think they were going to die. And these are experienced fishermen. This was a bad storm. And they wake Jesus up and they say, Master, don't you care that we perish? And then Jesus responds to them, O ye of little faith, right? And so what was Jesus' rebuke for? They didn't have a lack of faith that Jesus could calm the storm or else they wouldn't have woke him up and said, save us. They knew that Jesus could do it. Their lack of faith was that he cared. And that's sometimes where we fall. Sometimes we know that he's got the whole world in his hands. We know that he can, you know, Turn the king's heart however he will. We know that he can, you know, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can, you know, sell a few and give you some money. I heard somebody say that once. We know all those things, but we don't realize with a heart of faith that he cares. Really, he cares. And he knows the best for you, and he's looking out for the best for you. Uh, the Bible says that he who, and I'm paraphrasing here, you know, uh, didn't, didn't hold back his own son from us, how will he not just freely give us all things? And that's speaking of what what's God knows is good for us. What, why would he hold back any good thing uh, from us? And that's the answer. He, he won't. He won't hold back any good thing uh, from us, those that uh, love the Lord and, and strive to please and serve him. Now, our definition of what's good might be different from God's definition of what's good. But we can have faith and trust him because he knows better. 
All right, that was number four. Uh, verse number five, Thomas saith unto him, we know, uh, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? We don't know where you're going. How can we know, you know how you're going to get there? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And I mentioned the survey that was taken. Uh, there was a survey that was taken over a period of six years of those that claimed to be Christian, and they were asked two questions. Question number one, and they, and they were told to, to identify with which one they thought was true. Question number one or question number two. Number one was that, well, my religion is the one true faith. And I'm the, my, the, what I believe in, my faith that I believe in, is the only way to heaven. Point number two, many religions can lead to eternal life. Which statement do you agree with? And this audience was entirely those that identified with Christian. Now that includes Roman Catholic, which I would disagree with the designation Christian uh, for those that don't believe what Jesus taught as the gospel. But ne nevertheless, they were included in this research. 29% of those that claim to be Christian only 29% said theirs was the one true faith. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. 65% said many religions lead to eternal life. This is the world we live in today. 53% said Hinduism leads to eternal life. 69% said Judaism leads to salvation. 52% said Islam leads to eternal life. 42% said atheism can lead to eternal life. And 56% said people with no religious faith whatsoever can have eternal life. And these are people that claim to follow the teachings of Jesus. If there was another way to obtain eternal life, then why did Jesus have to die? And I just need to bring that out, covering over John 14, 6. Um, and then he talks about how he and the Father are one. And I'm going to uh, kind of press on uh, quickly here, um, since I covered that last time. I want to I put a little bit more of an emphasis on points 5 through 10 tonight, okay? So point number 5, starting in verse number 12. Reset your perspective to do the works of Jesus. Jesus says this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. This is interesting. So, um, and he's been talking about Actually, let me back up, because I, I, I don't want to miss this. Let's read verses 7 through 11, just so we have those in there, because they give us the context for verse 12. Verse 7, If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet thou hast not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. How sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Now listen to this part. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. The context here, Jesus is talking about the works that he has done and that they are to cause people to believe and that he's desiring that Philip and the others, by seeing what Jesus has taught and done, would cause them to believe. That is the context of when we come uh, to verse number 12. 
the works that Jesus had done there should have caused people to believe. The same works that we read of in the Gospels, as well as the works that he has done in our lives, should cause us, as well as others, to believe. When you read about what Jesus has done, when you see what Jesus has done in your life, even as a believer, does it cause you to trust him more? Does it cause you to believe more? Does it cause you to tell others about what Jesus has done? And that's kind of what's being taught in verse 12, when he says, I, Verily I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. Now we went a little bit, little bit further than this last time, but does this sound familiar? You guys remember me going over this a little bit? Okay. This is a promise to all believers, not just the apostles. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, he that believeth on me, that includes people like me that got saved in 1999. He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. I asked last time, does that mean we're all going to be Benny Hinn, you know, smacking people over the head with our coats and all kinds of crazy heretical stuff? No. We would carry on the works of Jesus. Now, we shouldn't immediately imagine all of his greatest miracles listed so far. And I've listed a bunch here that are only just in John. He turned water into wine, John 2. He read the mind of the woman of Samaria, John 4. He healed the official's son, also in John 4. Are we supposed to be doing this kind of stuff? He healed the crippled man for 38, who was crippled for 38 years. He fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. He, uh, I, I thought, <laughs> I, I saw this recently after moving down here in the south and having Bojangles for the first time, and I thought maybe the lad had a bow box or something, but it, but it doesn't say chicken, it says fish. So, you know, bread, there's loaves of bread in there. Anyway, he walked on water, he healed a man born blind, he rose Lazarus from the dead. The works spoken of here are like the works in verse number 10, where he says, The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me. Believe the Father. Believe the works. Uh, works that cause others to believe. That's the context. It's not healing people. It's not walking on water. It's not turning you know, water into wine. It's doing things, actions, that cause others to believe. In John 17, Jesus says that one of these works is loving one another. We will be Christ-like. That's one of the works that is um, an example of showing others about Jesus and causing them to believe. Uh, and then he says this. This is the second part. I got, a, I got multiple pages here. The second part of verse number 12. And greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. Whoa, okay, so greater works than Jesus ever did, we are going to do, why? Specifically because he is going to ascend. And this all is going to make sense in a second. What does this mean? How can we possibly do anything greater than Jesus did during his earthly ministry? Well, a hint is it has partially to do with the last clause in that sentence, because I go unto my Father. We will do greater works because Jesus died, was buried, arose, and ascended. And I asked last time, does that mean we're going to, you know, we're not going to walk on water, we're just going to fly over it. We're going to do, you know, something greater than what Jesus did. You know, maybe we'll turn water into Sprite or something. I don't, I don't know. No, not at all, not at all, not at all. The greater works have a greater magnitude because, specifically because, Jesus died and was buried and rose again and ascended to the Father. That means that the works that we get to do 
is we get to do something that Jesus didn't do while he was in his earthly ministry. And that is tell people, proclaim an already died, already buried, already risen again, and already ascended Savior. That they can have eternal life because it's paid for and done. When Jesus was doing his earthly ministry, that had not yet occurred. That had not yet happened. We will do greater works because he died, was buried, arose, and ascended. What are all the preceding verses all about? Causing others to believe. Paul told the Corinthian church that not all would do all the sign gifts, which are no longer active. Now, it's a different subject, but we can talk about that another time. It's not miracles. Anyone who believes can do it, and it has to do with the ascension. Remember that whatever, uh, whenever Jesus forgave sin or brought one to the faith, uh, remember how he talked to people and said, thy faith has, has, has made, me, made thee whole? You know, your sins are forgiven to that man that was sick of the palsy but that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. I say unto thee, arise and walk. You know, take up thy bed and walk, he did. And so, when Jesus did that, when he forgave sin or brought one to faith, it was based on a promise. It was based on the future, which Jesus knew, but that payment, that atonement, that suffering, death, and resurrection had not yet occurred. And so any and all forgiven sins are based upon the cross. It was looking to the atonement. You and I have an amazing opportunity to testify by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, which we're just about to find out about. Jesus is just about to tell us about that. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can tell of a sacrificed, buried, and risen Savior. We get to tell people by the works we do following Christ with a changed, loving life. And we'll get to John 17, maybe in a year or two, and we'll be able to talk about how one of the works that Jesus has commissioned us to do is loving one another in order to cause others to be able to believe. Uh, people will know that you are my disciples by your love, he says. So we get to tell people by the works that we do about an atonement that is already paid for rather than a promise for the future, it's an already paid ransom. That's what makes it greater. It's not flying across water or, or, or doing all kinds of crazy physical stuff. It has to do with the context of the gospel is done and we are now ambassadors to tell people about an already risen Savior. Then he says in verse 13 and 14, whatsoever ye shall ask in my name that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if ye ask anything in my name I will do it. Now that's something that um, and this is the last thing I think that we talked about um, before we ended our study a couple months ago. But here, this is something that sometimes people get the idea, well, I can just tack Jesus' name onto the end of whatever I'm going to say, and that'll make it come true. That'll make it be an answered prayer because he said, whatever you ask in my name, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. You know, so I mentioned, um, you know, Lord, let there be a, you know, a Lamborghini in the parking lot in Jesus' name. Okay, it's there, because he said that he would do whatever we ask in his name. No, that's not what it's saying. It's not an abracadabra. It's not a magic spell. Jesus is not a genie. Listen to what um, this is all about. This is not a blank check as long as we sign Jesus' name to it. It has a direct link to the previous context. In his name means for his name, for his glory, lifting him up for the purpose of his glory, as we do these great works. It all has the context of in ministry. In ministry, while you are following Jesus and doing what he said to do, if you ask something for his glory, for his sake, 
in the process of that ministry, he will do it. If it is something that is in accordance with his will. Um, as we do these great works, this shouldn't be removed from the context of our God-given mission. God is, uh, and Jesus is always going to do what is best for that person to be able to receive the gospel that you are trying to witness to, whether we realize it or not. He works differently than, than, than we do. His thoughts and his ways are higher than our thoughts and ways. But I'm thankful that he's in control and not us, because if we would do stuff differently, uh, we would have everything all messed up by now if we did what we wanted, how we wanted to do it. Okay, there we go. So before we move on to the rest of the chapter, is there any questions or comments about what we've looked at uh, so far? Okay, all right, here we go. So point number seven, okay, point number seven, and these will all help us to remove trouble from our hearts. Repent and recommit your life to Jesus and his commandments. Repent and recommit your life to Jesus and his commandments. He says in verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's interesting. Seems kind of like a blunt statement in the middle of nowhere. But it makes it that much more convicting when Jesus says this to his disciples. Again, this is within the last 24 hours of his earthly ministry. Some of the very last things that he is going to say to his disciples. And he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. How are we doing with this? You know, um, I listed a couple of different things here. This is a convicting statement. Things like take no thought for your life. How often do we do that? How often do we, we don't consider the lilies, we don't consider the sparrow, we just think about what I need, when I need it, and how I'm not having it right now. We're, maybe we would concentrate on, well, you know, I haven't killed anybody this week, or <laughs> I didn't cheat on my taxes, or, you know, I didn't cut anybody off, or, you know, whatever you may think of. But there's lots of things that Jesus taught that it's good to take a uh, accounting of in our life to see how we're doing. And these are things that are not only convicting in general, uh, but they're convicting uh, to me as well. Take no thought for your life. Uh, he talked about letting your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which art in heaven. How are we doing with that? When's the last time you told somebody about Jesus? Um, these are things that, that we should do. Um, and Jesus himself, if you love me, keep my commandments. I think there's another passage where he says, Why call ye me Master and Lord, and do not those things which I say? Um, just kind of an accounting of, of, of where we are in our relationship with the Lord. He said, whosoever shall be angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. What about that guy that cut you off? You know, oh! or the guy's going too slow in front of you when you're going to be late to some appointment. Late to church, that's the best, you know. <laughs> Boy, I, I don't know about you guys, but it seems like Sunday morning sometimes, or whenever it is that we're going to be on our way to church, it's like everything goes wrong, and Satan's like, <laughs> you know, we gotta, we gotta just calm down. And uh, oh, it was oh man, there was this, this gas station attendant. I went to this gas station to get gas, and there was this guy in front of me, and he was just saying all kinds of four-letter things about this lady that was at the gas station and she was having trouble pumping and, and, and this guy was just 
I don't know. He was saying all kinds of stuff about her. And uh, he's like, all right, see you later. And he walked out. And <laughs> the lady that's behind the counter, I hear her kind of mumble under her breath, not today, Satan. <laughs> and so it was kind of interesting. But oh, not today, Satan. <laughs> so, so, you know, um, Satan, uh, Paul said, we're not ignorant of his devices, of his wiles. Satan's always planning something. He's always scheming something. And uh, he's been around long enough to know what makes us tick. And uh, we need to resist him. Steadfast in the faith, the Bible says. But, uh, you know, Jesus said, don't be angry with your brother without a cause. Uh, and you'll be in danger of the judgment. He also said, whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Um, that's a convicting statement as well. We like to lust after things, don't we? Um, anything that uh, is, let me think here. There was a, there was a specific uh, way of, I heard somebody put it in a message on my way here. Um, wanting something that is, that is, that is not yours, basically. And we like to covet things. Paul said that I had not known sin, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. You know, we like to amass to ourselves things. And um, we ought not do that. Um, when we do that, our heart gets taken with those things. Like David when he saw Bathsheba on that rooftop. You know, you're, you're, Jesus said, where your, your, your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so if, you're, if, if your heart is towards something that you're paying attention to, you're going to start to treasure that thing. Uh, it's, it's, it's just how, how we work. Uh, Jesus also said, love your enemies. Boy, I mean, when we come to like election season, you know, people that we disagree with strongly on political matters, sometimes it's not as easy as we would think to not, you know, share that post that's lambasting somebody that stuck their foot in their mouth or whatever it might be. Um, we need to love our enemies. Uh, pray for them which despitefully use you. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, but treasures in heaven. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. How are we doing with all these things? Take an take a inventory tonight of where you are with those things in your life uh, because the Lord desires so much to remove trouble from our hearts. Do you know what will help remove the trouble and the anxiety and the worry and the fear from our hearts? By just following Jesus, by doing the things that he said, by confessing sin, to the Lord that maybe has been unconfessed, I don't know, different stuff that's in our life, it brings that trouble, that weariness, that fear. That happened to David in all those months that he had that unconfessed sin with Bathsheba. He, was, uh, he had weariness in his bones because of it. And that kind of a thing will do that to you. Sin will do that to you. So that's number seven. Repent and recommit your life to Jesus and his commandments. Number eight, point number eight here, Rely on the Holy Spirit of God. And this is amazing. This is an amazing part of John chapter 14. These things all go together with being able to do the works of Jesus, which cause others to believe. He says, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. This is an amazing, amazing truth. We, we take the Holy Spirit for granted in our lives, don't we? You know, it's, he's, just, he's just there. And we don't realize what an amazing, amazing truth, an amazing opportunity. The God that created all of the universe has put his spirit within us to help us, to comfort us, to encourage us, to convict us, 
to empower us to follow Jesus and to do what's right. The Holy Spirit of Jesus is called the Comforter. He is our advocate, our encourager, our helper, our intercessor. I, I got an analogy here for comfort food. How many of you guys like comfort food? If somebody asked me, like, what's your favorite food? Oh, it's probably going to be some kind of comfort food. <laughs> like, you know, um, pizza or that soup from Olive Garden or something. I don't know. What's that? Mac and cheese. That's a good one. That's a good one. How many of you guys have had fried mac and cheese from the Cheesecake Factory? That's like, oh, very good. Okay, anyway. <laughs> don't you hate it when a preacher does that? Like, it's getting close to being lunchtime. And Okay. So comfort food brings us joy when we are feeling down because it tastes great. It's usually warming and filling and takes our attention off the circumstances of our life. A comforter for bed helps you rest and sleep and keeps you warm as it softly wraps you. Have you ever thought of the Holy Spirit in this way? The comforter, he's called. Comforter also means advocate, helper, intercessor, encourager. It comes from a Greek word that means to come alongside somebody. Just as a parent cares for his children or a good friend helps or stands up for and encourages and strengthens, so does the Holy Spirit for us. We need to take advantage of what God has given us in the Holy Spirit. Uh, uh, the word another here is amazing. So he doesn't just say, all right, I'm going to send you a comforter. I'm going to send you a helper. He says, I'm going to send you another comforter. When I go to the Father, okay, and remember how he just said, you're going to do greater works because I go to the Father, right? He's getting ready to go and die on the cross on our behalf, willingly laying his life down, and to rise again three days later to go to the Father and then to send another comforter. Meaning that Jesus was the original comforter. He was the comforter, the encourager, the helper, the one that came alongside his disciples, and now the Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to be another comforter, just as Jesus was that to his disciples, to his followers. The Holy Spirit is here in place of Jesus. Just as he was with, encouraged, challenged, empowered, comforted, and convicted his disciples, so the Holy Spirit does for us. The Holy Spirit today, in the minds of many, is twisted into being something he is not. So I have 24 truths about the Holy Spirit. And I got to find, let's see here. Hmm. Oh, there it is. It's on the other side of the same page. Who'd have thought of that? Okay. Some truths about the Holy Spirit. And I have some, some notes about some of these, um, some verse references that uh, if we have time, I'll go ahead and, and read them for you as we come to them but just 24 different things that uh, I came up with in studying through this. Uh, number one, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. There's three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, uh, the Son, and the Spirit, and these three are one. Um, and so the Spirit, and we have explicit um, teaching in the Scripture that the Holy Spirit is also the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God and is known as the Spirit of Christ. And we, we read just in the next chapter about Christ abiding in us and us abiding in Christ. And so I'm going to read you some verses from Romans chapter 8, and uh, I'll just read it here. Uh, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 5, it, it says, and it's part of the verse here, If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you, 
And later in that same passage, it says, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, the spirit of the Messiah, the spirit of Jesus, he is none of his. And then in Galatians chapter 4, it says this, and because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Isn't that amazing? And so it's not just that passage that talks about the spirit of adoption, right? Crying, Abba, Father. But specifically in Galatians, it talks about why we would cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. That's literally what it means. Um, Av in Hebrew is Father. And Abba, it's Aramaic, but it means Daddy. Okay? Um, commonly in Jewish households, in those that speak um, Hebrew off and on, the, uh, the, the rabbi, the orthodox, orthodox rabbi that taught my Hebrew class, he talked about his son and his grandkids, and as they were growing up, they would say, Abba, Abba. And that's what they said as, 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 as little kids to their father. It's not like, oh, father, please pick me up, you know, but it's, it's daddy. That's what it means. And so why and how can we cry that? Well, it's because the spirit of God's only begotten son is within us, and, 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 and we identify with that on top of the fact that we are born again, born of the Spirit, right? Um, and then there's also the aspect of the adoption, which refers to the glorified body that we will one day receive. Being a son placed into that uh, complete uh, creation of a glorified body. Um, but the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. And there's some additional references there. I'm not going to read all of them for time's sake, but I wanted to give them to you. Uh, amazing, amazing truth. And so Jesus has gone to the Father, he has ascended, and he has sent his Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, to dwell within us. And there's numerous things that he does because of that in our lives. This is interesting from uh, 1 Kings 19. You remember the prophet Elijah? And he's looking for some kind of a message from God. He's looking for some kind of help, some kind of comfort. And there's like a fire and a whirlwind and all kinds of stuff going on. But God was not in those things. And sometimes today, in Christianity, okay, there can be a whole lot of noise, a whole lot of a flamboyant show, a whole lot of loudness, and God is not necessarily in those things. The Holy Spirit of God, when he speaks into our lives, it's not, you need to get right or you're going to, you know, it's not like that. It's this constant, still, small, gentle, yet more convicting than any man can possibly be, voice. Because his is the voice of, of, of truth. You ought not to do that. Don't do that. How many of you ever heard that? <laughs> you know, it's like a parent telling their child, don't touch that, you'll get hurt. And we have from the Holy Spirit, oftentimes, just this, he works in and through our heart, not with an, not with an audible voice, but we can sense that he's there, we can sense when he's grieved, we can sense when uh, we are more controlled by the Spirit of God, filled with the Spirit, um, because we're going to manifest all kinds of fruit listed in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, meekness, faith, uh, long-suffering, um, temperance. That's one of them. We'll get to that in a minute. But the Holy Spirit is not loud, flamboyant, or boisterous. He speaks in a still, small voice. The Holy Spirit is a gentleman. I've heard people oftentimes say. He gives wisdom. Exodus 31 uh, verse 3, it talks about um, some people that were working on the tabernacle um, being skilled from the Spirit of God to be given wisdom. 
And so the Spirit of God, He can help guide us into wise decisions and, 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 and doing right things as we follow the Lord. Uh, fourth thing that I have about the Holy Spirit is He gives boldness. Acts chapter 4 and verse 31 says, They were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. Amazing. We can be bold, more bold than we would normally be in and of our own strength, because we have the Holy Spirit within us to empower us to say what we need to say. And a lot of this, pretty much all of it, relates directly to the context of doing this ministry of bringing people to Christ, of being ambassadors for Him, of doing the works of Jesus. Again, not physical healings and crazy sign gift type of miracles, but causing others to believe. By sharing with them the Word of God, by sharing with them the Gospel, by showing them with the love of Christ, that they need to be saved. And through all of those things, the Holy Spirit will work to give us boldness, to give us strength, to give us wisdom, uh, point number five, to give us rest. The Holy Spirit can give you rest. Um, it says that the Spirit of the Lord, and this is from Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord caused him to rest. So didst thou lead thy people to make thyself a glorious name. Now one of the last points here tonight when we get through with the study is has to do with rest. And so I don't want to get ahead of that, but all of this directly relates when we have the trouble that's normally in our heart by you know, being filled with our flesh and our self-motives and the things that we want and the things that we want to do and the way that we want to do them and we don't come to Christ out of a spirit of humility and re recommitting ourselves to Him and, and, and relying on the Holy Spirit, realizing the power and purpose of prayer, we don't realize those things. We're going to be so weighed down and so burdened with every little thing. But in relying on the Spirit, we can have those burdens just lifted. One of the fruit of the Spirit is joy, right? And peace, right? Um, okay, so he encourages righteousness. In Ezekiel chapter 36, it talks about, I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. The Holy Spirit doesn't force us to do what's right, but he surely encourages us to do what's right. How many of you guys have ever been somewhere, uh, like a checkout aisle or something? And you feel this just prompting, again, not an audible voice, but you feel this prompting, go give that person a tract. Give that person, you know, a gospel pamphlet. Um, and it, that happens to me, especially when I don't do it. And I'm on my way to the car, and all of the tracts that I have, the gospel tracts that I have, are in the car. Go back in, grab one, give one to that person, and, and, and tell them that this is for you, you know. Um, anyway, the Lord does that. He encourages righteousness. He accomplishes things that might and power cannot. This is a famous verse, Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And so we can accomplish great and amazing things if we simply yield to God's leading through his spirit in our life. Um, Amazing things have been done by people that have not necessarily leaned on their own understanding. They've not leaned on logic, but I feel that this is something that God wants me to do. And God works through those things, no matter how, how scary it might be, no matter how illogical it might be by man's understanding. 
um, if God wants you to do something and it's in line with his word and you feel like he's prompting you to move forward in faith and do that thing, then by all means, do it. Uh, rely on the Spirit of God. He can do amazing things in and through you. He can accomplish things that might and power cannot. Uh, Matthew chapter 3, he baptizes us into God's family. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11 says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. And by the way, the word baptize, it means immerse. That's what the word means. Uh, to dunk, to dip, to plunge, to immerse. He says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, John the Baptist talking about Jesus, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And so um, there's lots of different things about this verse uh, that we could say, but just know that when we accept Jesus as our Savior, we are living in a time where Jesus has already died and buried and rose again, and he has already sent the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. So when you and I accept Jesus by faith as our Savior, when we receive him as our Savior, guess what happens? We're born again, born of the Spirit, and we are immersed uh, into the family of God by the Holy Spirit. And so... Um, just, just amazing. I don't know about any of you, but when I got saved, when I was, I was 15, and uh, I was alone with my, with my friend in his room. I was sleeping over, and it was like probably 3 or 4 in the morning. And um, we had both heard a lot of gospel teaching over the previous week in two separate locations, and we decided to get together and talk about those things. And by like 3 or 4 in the morning, we were just talking, and, and, and like I said, um, I was tired, I wanted to go to bed, he was tired, he wanted to go to bed, and something, you ever, you ever had a friend that just like, or a roommate in college maybe, or, or a brother or sister that you shared a room with where it's like, oh, they finally shut up, now I can go to bed. And then you hear this voice, hey Dan, you know, or fill in your name, and, 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 and that person just keeps talking, that's what it was like. And we would kind of go back and forth between, all right, all right, good night, and then I would say something, or he would say something. And that conversation kept going until like 5 in the morning when the conviction and the tension was so heavy in the room that both he and I, we got saved there that night. And in that room, it was like, oh, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I didn't, I, I didn't see some manifestation of Jesus or any kind of crazy thing. I didn't feel like lightning in my body. But what I did feel was just the burden and guilt of my sin was, that, was, that was piling up. It was, you know, compiling that tension, and then it was just gone when I said, Lord, forgive me. I'm sorry. Please be my Savior. Um, and that's an amazing, amazing uh, experience because the Holy Spirit of God, I mean, it's like you can't really explain it other than the fact of um, it brings joy. It brings um, a realization that God's word is true. I remember one of the very first things that I thought when I got saved as a 15-year-old boy is the flood actually happened, like Noah's flood actually happened. Because I realized that if I accepted what Jesus said about how to be saved, and it worked, and it was true, and I felt the burden of my sin gone, um, that everything else that the Bible says is true.
no matter how hard it would have been to believe to somebody that had been you know, raised in a public school system. Um, and I accepted it by faith. I, I, I somehow internally knew that God's word was true, and that's God's spirit testifying with our spirit. Um, anyway, um, so he baptizes us into God's family. He glorifies Jesus. Um, I'm going to read to you in uh, chapter 15. You can, flip, you can flip there. There's a couple of these passages that are in the book of John. Chapter 15 and verse 26. The Holy Spirit, he glorifies Jesus. Uh, chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. He's going to glorify Jesus. He's going to verify in your heart the message of Jesus. Um, and then go over to chapter 16 and verse 12. Chapter 16 and verse 12. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but, whatso, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. And of course, we have the completed revelation of God's word here with us today. Yes? So, when he says you're, you're unable to bear them, does that simply mean you can't understand them, or there's, uh, is, are they something beyond what you can accept? Okay, this is how I understand it, and we see an example in Peter, right? So before Jesus died, the disciples were all just like, what's going on? They all, the Bible says, they all forsook him and fled, not just Peter. And so they were in panic mode. They were in lack of faith mode. They were in, you know, Peter saying, I'll die for you, Lord. And he, he says, you know, really? Because the rooster's going to crow um, before you denied me three times. And so I take it to mean that they weren't ready for it um, spiritually, mentally, um, emotionally, um, in, in, in their mental capacity, but also in their spiritual understanding. The Holy Spirit had not yet come to indwell them and empower them. When that happens, you see such a change in the life of Peter from who he was before Christ died, buried, and rose again, and the Holy Spirit came to after all that had taken place. And then we see amazing things transpire, whereas all of the disciples, every single one of them forsook him and fled, and yet all of them, except for John, end up dying a martyr's death for their faith in Jesus. They were empowered, they were emboldened, they were made new, just like we are made new the moment that we become born again. And so the Holy Spirit gives that boldness, and I think um, that that correlates heavily to why he says you can't bear it now but when the spirit of truth has come he's going to show you and I think that part of that has to do with the completed revelation uh, through Peter and Paul and through the gospel writers and, and, and so on uh, the rest of our New Testament so there's a number of reasons why you know uh, he says I, I believe that he says that you're not able to bear it now Does that answer your question sort of, sort of. <laughs> okay Sure, sure. Okay, well, maybe I'll talk to you a little bit more about it after if you still have some questions. Um, but yeah, so amazing truth that he glorifies Jesus. 
He leads into truth, which is the passage we just read. He's going to lead us into truth. Now, that being said, there's those out there that like to say that, well, God told me this, and um, it doesn't jive with the rest of God's word. Um, you can mark it down. That's, that's false. That's absolutely false. Um, I think it says in 1 John, try the spirits whether they be of God, you know. And we're not in a situation right now, I believe, where we're going to hear some new message from God, you know. We may have prompting or leading to do something in our heart and life, but, you know, it's not, let me tell you this new message that God gave me today, um, kind of a thing. Because the completed revelation, that which is perfect, as it says, I think in is it 1 Corinthians, um, has come, the completed revelation of God's word. And so he will lead us into truth. Acts chapter 5 and verse 3, he can be lied to. Do you know that, remember Ananias and Sapphira? Okay, People were donating all of their property and selling their property and giving the proceeds to uh, the infant church there. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they said, oh, well, we'll do this too, except they kept, they kept back part of the price. And uh, I think it, I'm trying to think of who it is that confronts them about it. Is it Peter? Peter, yeah. And so he confronts them, and he says that you have lied, uh, not unto men, but unto God. And you've lied unto the Holy Ghost, he says. How can we do that? Well, this is, this is, this is my thought on the matter, okay? So what they were doing internally is they were fighting against the conviction of the Holy Spirit and saying internally what we're doing isn't wrong. And maybe even they were trying to convince themselves that, oh, we gave the whole thing. But in reality, you know, in a bad way, they're trying to make it so that their left hand doesn't know what their right hand is doing. But when God convicts you of something, you know, if God says that something is wrong or God says that you shouldn't do something um, and you completely ignore that and go ahead and do it anyway, um, saying that it's not going to hurt me, it's not really wrong, um, I can do this, I have liberty to do this, um, you know, that's something that we're not communicating or we're not allowing the Holy Spirit to communicate to us. We're quenching him. And I think that what the lying to the Holy Ghost thing has to do with is kind of parallel to that, quenching the Spirit, trying to douse his conviction um, in your life for doing something wrong. Now with them, um, and Mark has mentioned this before, um, with the way that things were transpiring in the early church, I mean, this was the very beginning, there were some things that took place like they were, you know, struck dead for what they had done. Uh, as, as an example for what they were doing in making a profit from what they were showing was giving to God's work. And so we need to not um, lie to the, to the Holy Spirit. We need to not um, contradict his leading in our internal heart and life. Number 12, I don't have 12 fingers, I can't do that. He guides us into doing Jesus' work. And there's a number of different verses um, there. Um, and actually, they're all from the book of Acts, except for the last one. Let's go ahead and turn to some of these. Acts chapter 8. You can keep your finger there in John chapter 14. Acts chapter 8. We'll just read a couple of these and, and go back. 
Acts chapter 8 and verse number 29. He guides us in doing Jesus' work. Um, he said here uh, to, to Philip, the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself unto this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him. This is the Ethiopian eunuch that Philip guides to uh, 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 a, a realization that Jesus is the Messiah and, and to a faith. He leads him to a faith uh, in Jesus. Look at chapter 11 and verse 12. Acts chapter 11 and verse number 12. It says, And the Spirit bade me go with them, nothing doubting. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered into the man's house. And so um, this is Simon, um, or this is um, the, uh, the um, Cornelius there in, in uh, Caesarea. And he was bade by the Spirit, Peter was, uh, to go with them. Uh, and so what we need to realize is that God's Spirit will help us. He will help guide us into um, ministry and talking to people about him. Uh, he will help us to know how to proceed. I don't know about you, but when I've been talking to people about Jesus, um, I'm constantly in my heart and mind, you know, Lord, help me, Lord, help me, Lord, help me. Because sometimes our flesh wants us to react a certain way. It often has to do with pride. And so we can think to ourselves, well, I could give him this answer and really show him uh, what's right, you know, in a, in a bad way. I can, show, <laughs> I can show him how smart I am. Um, but God doesn't want us to do that. God wants us to show them love uh, through Christ and give the truth in a loving way and in a humble way. And so God's Spirit is not going to um, uh, desire in our hearts for us to, to do that, to act that way in a way that is prideful or arrogant or demeaning uh, to somebody, uh, something that kind of contradicts the Spirit of Christ, the love of Christ, the way that Christ acted uh, in his demeanor. He affirms our salvation. Romans chapter 8 and verse 16 says, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Romans chapter 8 and verse 6. Um, he helps us to know that we are children of God, that we are saved internally in our heart. He communicates our heart's groanings to the Father. Romans chapter 8 and verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not uh, what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he searcheth the hearts, and knoweth, uh, and he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. In prayer, when we're facing a difficulty, when we're facing a trial, the Holy Spirit helps us to understand how we should pray. You ever gone to a prayer meeting kind of like in, a, in, in, in the wrong mindset? Or like, I don't know, heart set isn't a word, but you know, being in the wrong attitude, not necessarily in an attitude of prayer, not necessarily in an attitude of confession and wanting God to revive our hearts and work in our lives. And yet when you get on your knees and start praying with that group of people, God kind of changes your heart in the midst of that prayer time. You ever had that happen? I've had that happen before. And the Holy Spirit just works in our hearts and lives to help us to realize what is right, what we should be praying for, why we should be praying for it. He realigns our perspective. 
Uh, and so that's one of the things that the Holy Spirit does. Okay, I'm going to have to just read through the rest of these and move along or else we're going to run out of time. He helps us understand the deep things of God in 1 Corinthians. He gives us liberty, freeing us from the law in 2 Corinthians and in Galatians 5. He assures us of our glorification, 2 Corinthians 5. He cries through our heart, because we are sons, to the Father, he says, Abba, and that's Galatians 4, 6. He enables us to refuse the flesh. He'll, he helps us to say no. Um, I heard one preacher say once, um, do any of you have trouble saying no? Do you guys, either you or you know somebody that has a real hard time saying no, okay? He's, uh, this preacher, he said, you know, that's a fruit of the Spirit, don't you? Being able to say no. And I thought, I don't know if I've ever heard that one before. Um, temperance, self-control, being able to say no. The Holy Spirit will empower you to do that if you allow him to. Um, he seals us, Ephesians 1. He gives us access to the Father in Ephesians 2. He strengthens us spiritually in Ephesians 3. He bears fruit in our lives, Galatians 5. He can be resisted, grieved, and or quenched. And there's multiple references there. But this is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. And so the world doesn't have the Spirit of God within them. Okay? It's very different. And that's why sometimes they don't understand uh, us. They don't understand God's Word, certainly, because they don't have God's Spirit within them. And he says here, this is interesting, the word comfortless is orphanos. What's that sound like to you? Orphan. It's the word we get orphan from. And so the word orphan comes from this word, comfortless. The Holy Spirit brings us comfort and peace in the same way that an adopted parent or caregiver brings help, peace, and joy to their adopted child. That's what the Holy Spirit is meant to be for us, um, based on what Jesus has taught here. He says, Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. In that day ye shall know that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, and I in you. Once again, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved to my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Jesus says that those that believe in him can have real life because he rose from the dead and he lives within them through his Spirit. Do you want to see Jesus? This is how, until we reach the other side, and see him face to face. He says, I'm going to manifest myself to him. That's not like we're going to see some kind of, you know, Jesus in our, in, our, in our waffle in the morning. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about his spirit testifying with our spirit that we realize uh, that Jesus is there. And he's going to help us. He's going to guide us into the truth of his word. He is going to convict us. He is going to encourage us. He's going to lift us up. He's going to give us peace and joy and all of those different fruits of the spirit. I have a parallel thing that I want to show you here in Joshua chapter 1. Uh, and I think we might have time to do it quickly. Okay, so keep your finger there in John 14 and turn back to the book of Joshua chapter 1. This passage in Joshua parallels the rest of what we're going to look at 
in John chapter 14. The power of God's presence. We've talked about the Holy Spirit, relying on the Spirit of God. The power of God's presence in our lives. After wandering in the wilderness for 40 years and Moses' death, God gives Joshua the command to lead Israel into the promised land. And so, verses number 1 through 6, the power to claim his promises. Uh, Joshua 1, 1 says, Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of, in Hebrew it's Nun, not Nun, but Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all the people unto the land which I do give them, even unto the children of Israel, Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites, and the great sea. Uh, verse number 5, There shall not be a man able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Be strong and of a good courage. For unto this people thou shalt divide an inheritance. Uh, the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. And so they're going into the promised land. They're going to be conquering the promised land. And the key to all of that is God's <coughs> presence. Now I've heard preachers, and I don't know if you've heard preachers, and they talk about, you know, this is the promised land that sim symbolizes heaven. I, it better not symbolize heaven because you've got to kill giants to get in there. And you're going to have trouble the whole entire time. I think that in a, in, in a symbolic way, and the scripture doesn't necessarily do this explicitly, but you can, you can kind of parallel it with the victorious Christian life. Because God has given us promises in his word to be able to have peace, to be able to have joy, to be able to do what Jesus calls us to do in ministry. And Satan wants to stop us. Satan wants to keep us from doing those things, but God has equipped us. God has given us something to empower us to get through this life. And that is his spirit and his word. We read about those in Ephesians chapter 6. But here we have power through God's presence to claim his promises. In a little bit, near the end of this chapter, we're almost there. We're going to talk about some promises that Jesus has given that we are able to hold on to. Not one of those name it and claim it things where you have to just like speak it into existence and it will happen. That's not what this is talking about. It's talking about realizing the promises in God's word that Jesus gave for you that you can hold on to. And God's presence will help you um, to do that. Power to prosper in verses 7 through 9. And for time's sake, I'm going to have to skip through some of these things. But he talks about the word of God causing them to prosper. This is not prosperity gospel. This is not health and wealth. This is success is doing God's will. Prosperity is doing God's will. And God's Spirit is going to help you to do that. See, we have different definitions in this world of what is good, of what is success, of what is prosperity. True prosperity, true success, is doing God's will and experiencing the power of his presence and all of the different fruit that come along with it. That is prosperity. That is success. And then also in uh, verses 10 through 16, he talks about the power to possess, to possess the land. Possessing isn't just ownership. Possessing equals rest. And talking to the, the tribe of Gad, I believe it is, uh, verse 10 of Joshua chapter 1, uh, to the Reubenites, verse 12, and the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh spake Joshua, saying, Remember the word which Moses, 
of the servant of the Lord commanded you, saying, The Lord your God hath given you rest and hath given you this land. And then down in verse number 16, let's see here, verse 15. Until the Lord hath given your brethren rest, as he hath given you, uh, and they have possessed the land which the Lord your God giveth them, then ye shall return to the land of your possession and enjoy it, which the Lord uh, Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you on this side Jordan uh, toward the sunrising. It's not just holding on to something, but it's experiencing rest while you are in that state. So here, while we are in this Christian life, we still have these earthly bodies. We haven't been glorified yet. We haven't been raptured. We're not in heaven yet. We're still living here. We're having to deal with this old flesh, and we're trying to carry out ministry to those that we come in contact with, doing the works of Jesus. And we're going to have opposition. We're going to have trouble. But guess what? Right now, tonight, in the midst of all of this stuff, you can experience rest within. Now, I don't know what all of your lives are like. Um, maybe you have difficulty in different areas. Uh, sometimes there's family strife back home. Sometimes there's uh, health difficulties, whatever it might be. God can give you rest in the middle of all of that. Many times we don't realize uh, the great power that God's presence brings. I read all those things, those 24 things that the Holy Spirit does. But when the rubber meets the road, if we are not trusting him and yielding to him, we're not going to experience those things. We're not going to experience, you know, the joy and the peace and uh, the fulfillment and the leading uh, that God's Spirit can give us. We've been missing out on his rest. He can provide rest to our souls. Remember the promises of Jesus. This is number nine, how we can have uh, trouble removed from our heart. Remember the promises of Jesus. Verse 22, Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, okay? Judah was a common name, uh, but not Iscariot. How is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? How are we going to see you and the rest of the world is not? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and will come unto him and make our abode with him. I mentioned in the first uh, part of this chapter when I taught last time that the word mansion in the first part of John 14, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. The word mansion is the same word here as abode. Now, in our hearts, internally, we have a dwelling place with the Lord. And that's a promise that you can bank on. And then verse 24, He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. All that Jesus has spoken of is of the Father. He has, this new, he, he has said this numerous times in John. John chapter 3, John chapter 8, John chapter 12, and 14 are just some examples. He's constantly pointing back to the Father. I don't testify of myself. I don't speak the things of myself, but what the Father hath told me, that I speak and that I do. And the works that I do are not of me, but of the Father. We do not believe that Jesus became God, but rather God became Jesus. God took on human flesh and became a man, a living, breathing, sinless man, Jesus the Messiah of Israel. And then he says in verse 25, he says, These things have I spoken unto you, remember, keeping the promises, uh, claiming the promises that Jesus has given to, to us. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, 
He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. God's Spirit within us will help us remember the teachings of Jesus. He'll help bring to remembrance the things that we've studied in the Word of God. I believe this relates to passages like John chapter 12 and verse 16. Turn back there for a minute. John chapter 12 and verse number 16. Okay. In John chapter 12, in verse number 16, all those different things that happened uh, with uh, Jesus there. It says, These things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, and this is talking about his triumphal entry, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. After Jesus is glorified and ascended, the Holy Spirit has come. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, <laughs> you know, Jesus, it, the, the things that Jesus had taught were brought back into their mind. Now also, I believe this has uh, something to do with those that would be the authors of, of Scripture, okay? Um, beyond just a general idea, um, those like John and Matthew um, and Mark and Luke, um, they were um, given perfect knowledge. The Scripture that God would give them, God breathed in and through them, uh, through His Spirit. And so those things that Jesus had taught were brought back to their memory, brought to back to their remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. All that we spoke about previously uh, regarding praying in Jesus' name applies here in why the Father would send His Spirit. He says, whom the Father will send in my name, for my glory, for my sake, for God's plan to be accomplished. That's the purpose for which the Holy Spirit was given. And then lastly, our last point here, the last couple of verses. The last way to remove trouble from your heart is to rest in his peace. Now, I'm not talking about RIP on a tombstone, okay? <laughs> but rest, rest while you're alive in the peace that Jesus offers. Look at this, verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace give I unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away, and come again unto you. If you loved me, you would rejoice, because I said I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, you might believe. Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. This is some interesting phrases here. For the prince of this world cometh, better is coming. Okay, The impending um, sequence, the impending crisis that is about to unfold with Jesus' atonement on our behalf uh, of our sin is about to take place. His betrayal has already been set in motion. The prince of this world is about to try his last-ditch attempt 
to thwart God's plan regarding the gospel. And the approach is thought of uh, as then taking place. For the phrase, the prince of this world, and this is from uh, Eliot's commentary for English readers. He gives a note on John 12, 31. Uh, the prince of evil is here regarded as working in and by Judas, who is carrying out his plans and doing his work. And so he says, um, what's going to be happening shortly? Um, I'm not going to be talking with you much. And so take to heart what I'm telling you right now. The prince of the world, this world cometh and hath nothing in me. This, this phrase, these words are to be taken in their full and absolute meaning, and they assert that the prince of this world possesses nothing in the person of Christ. In him he has never for a moment ruled. For this appeal to perfect sinlessness, compare notes on John 8.29, it follows uh, this, that his surrender of himself is entirely voluntary. There's a passage where it says that, um, and I mentioned this earlier, he was tempted in all ways like as we are, yet without sin. In the original language, it has the sense of no sin before, no sin during, no sin after, entirely without sin. It's kind of the same kind of sense here where it says that he hath nothing in me. There's nothing in and around in what anything that Jesus had done that was controlled or caused by the devil. Jesus said, I lay down my, my, my life of myself, and, and, and no man takes it from me. And then he says in verse 31, But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. And he says, Arise, and let us go hence. So there's an exciting passage coming along about abiding in Christ in John chapter 15, and we will plan on looking at that next time. Is there any questions or comments or discussion about anything that we've talked about? I know it's been a long haul. We went through 31 verses roughly. Okay. All right. Well, I'll go ahead and close in a word of prayer and then we'll have some goodies. Thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you again for your word. Thank you for the words of Jesus. Thank you. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson. Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to, or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.